We're going to switch gears this morning. Last three Sundays, we were in the book of Hebrews looking at the perfect Christ. Well, this morning, we're going to go to the Old Testament in preparation for New Year's. And you know, as uh, another year comes to an end, you might be like the rest, analyzing the past year, taking stock of what happened over 2021. You know, reviewing the goals that you've set at the beginning, the resolutions that you kept or haven't kept throughout the year, the areas you've developed in as a person or as a family, Maybe you're going over the various seasons over this past year and the lessons that the Lord has taught you. You know, whenever you come to these moments, asking the right questions is crucial in order to get the right answers and make proper conclusions. Sometimes asking the right questions is critical for your very well-being. There's a story that's told of a missionary in South America who, when the temperature soared there in the place where he was staying over 120 degrees, he was tempted to cool off in the local river that was there. But he was very afraid of the men eating fish. The locals, however, assured him that the brinas that were there, they only bite people when they swim in schools or teams or groups. And so each afternoon, being assured from the locals that he's fine, he's safe, each afternoon, whenever the temperature climbed over 120, he would go and he would cool himself off in the river for as long as he stayed there. Months later, he heard of a report of a local fisherman who had fallen out of his boat and was never recovered. He was so alarmed, he began to ask his neighbors if, Perhaps the man was eaten by piranhas. Oh no, they said. Only while swimming, swimming in schools do piranhas bite people. And they never swim in schools around there, swim in teams. But why are they not, ar- not around, the missionary asked. Oh, the neighbors casually replied. They never swim in schools where there are alligators. <laughs> You know, asking the right questions and answering them com- correctly can be the difference between being safe and actually ended up getting eaten by alligators. Praise the Lord that, that he was saved. And uh, for the many times he took a dip in that river, he was preserved. But the same kind of reality is true spiritually. Asking and answering correct questions can mean the difference between right and wrong conclusions on the one hand, but also, friends, and even more serious, between eternal life and eternal condemnation. I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm 15. Psalm 15. This is a very short psalm in which David poses a question to God. And his question is of eternal significance. It is, in fact, the ultimate question. And so for the remainder of our time together as we worship the Lord here by diving into his word, I want us to see not only the question but also the answer that we may increase in our love for Christ and would live in the manner that pleases him. Let's read beginning with verse 1 of Psalm 15. 
This is a psalm of David. And David comes and David asks the Lord the following. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. As you see, there is this sort of threefold progression in this psalm. In verse one, he asks the great question. And then in verses two and five, he gives the grand answer. Uh, an answer that really should intimidate all of us. And, and, and if it doesn't, then we may be reading the, our Bibles upside down. The great question in verse one, then the great grand answer in verses two and five. And then at the very end of verse five, he gives us this glorious promise. So I want us to look at this passage and just these three simple points. The great question, the grand answer, and then the glorious promise. And as we look at this, the big idea, the big theme of this psalm that emerges for us is this. Permanent residence with God is guaranteed to those who please him. Okay? Permanent residence with God is guaranteed to those who please him. And if you're taken aback by this big idea or this proposition, then um, join the club. This is a grand proposition. But this is the ultimate question here that we want to consider. Number one, the great question. He begins, David, and it is the Psalm of David. This is the first book of the Psalter. If you know that the 150 Psalms are divided into five books, we find ourselves in the first book. All but two of the Psalms in this book are written by David including this one. And David here begins this psalm by asking two rhetorical questions. Now, a rhetorical question is one in which the questionnaire, he does not expect an answer in return. He asks the question, but he doesn't want you to answer. He's gonna answer it for us. And often wisdom writers, they begin with rhetorical questions to, to grab their audience's attention, especially the uh, Psalms, uh, the writers of the book of Psalms, for instance, uh, turn back and, and just look at Psalm 13, for instance. Psalm 13 is another Psalm of David. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And all of a sudden, when you come to this verse, like, whoa, what's going on here? He's being forgotten by the Lord. He's hiding his face from him. And then he goes on to explain what that means. Or look at Psalm 10. David, or, or we don't know, this is one of the Psalms that we don't know who wrote. He says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Whenever you come to, to these questions, you, you are oh, sort of drawn into their situation so that you may be asking the same. If I'm in the same position ever, 
What is the answer? How do I find God's presence? How do I come back into God's presence? And so same thing he's doing here in verse in Psalm 15 is he draws us in and he says, think with me, contemplate, ask this great, this ultimate question. And he asks two questions, but really they all communicate one thought. Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent, who will dwell on your holy hill? He begins and he addresses this question to Yahweh, O Yahweh, verse one. This covenant-keeping God, O Yahweh, who can abide and who can dwell? And you come across two references here to the tent, abiding your tent, and then to the holy hill. Now you remember, you remember that the tent here probably refers to the Old Testament tabernacle. What was the significance of the Old Testament tabernacle? It is the tent that, the, that Moses built for the people of God to assemble in where the presence of God would dwell in the midst of the camp of Israel. And so for 40 years while in the wilderness, they would set up this tabernacle and God would dwell there with his people. And they would encamp around the tabernacle. And then after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, once the sons of Israel entered the promised land and once Jerusalem was conquered, then Solomon, we read, he builds this grand temple for the Lord. It becomes this more permanent place for God's dwelling. From tent to the temple on the holy hill. But what is the significance of this tent and temple? When you read the New Testament, in fact, when you read the book of Hebrews, as, as we were doing for the past three weeks, we find that this tent and, and the temple, they ultimately pointed to something greater. In fact, the tent and the temple were made according to the heavenly pattern we read in Hebrews, pointing to a, more, a greater and a more permanent and more lasting place. In fact, the very heavenly dwelling. This is where God dwells. And so what is David asking here ultimately? What he's asking is this, Lord, Yahweh, who will dwell with you in your presence? Who can have this unhindered fellowship with you and not be cast out? Notice the the word dwell and the word abide here. It's not just to enter in and out. That's what the sons of Israel would do. Nobody spent overnight, you know, camping in this tent overnight. But now he's saying, who can actually not just come in? The question here is not about coming in, but staying in, residing, permanently dwelling in the very presence of God. Ultimately, who is it that's going to have a permanent residence with you in eternity, forever? And do you see why this is the ultimate question now? Isn't this what ultimately matters for us? Isn't this the question of eternal significance? Lord, who will reside with you forever? If if you had a chance to ask the Lord a question, an important question, I mean, what would it be? What would it be? Depends who you ask, right? If you're a kid, you might be wondering if, if your pet makes it to heaven. Right, maybe you just came back from camping 
and you're fed up with mosquitoes and you want to just ask the Lord, Lord, why in the world did you even create mosquitoes? All right, it's, it's what you're going through. Maybe you, you're going through some terrible evil that's been done against you and you may even be tempted to, to ask the Lord a more serious question, why do bad things happen to, to so-called good people? David asked the question that most people would ask when they think about eternity. Who shall dwell with you in your presence and would have unhindered fellowship with you, Lord? Because when everything else, friends, is stripped away, your accountability before your creator is the only thing that remains and that is the only thing that you think of. Friend, have you ever or have you recently asked yourself the ultimate question? Am I, am I living in fellowship with the Lord? Am I the kind of person the Lord would approve to be in his presence for eternity? Especially as this year draws to a close, we need to be thinking about that. Maybe, maybe you've been troubled by your own sins, or maybe you see the sins of others around you. Maybe you're, you're in great despair this morning, or maybe you just finished reading the law of the Lord and, and it motivates you to ask, am I in? Am I even in, Lord? Who will enter and who is able to stay? Well, the good news for us, church, is that David answers this question for us. He proposes this, this great question, but he also gives us this grand answer and I want you to look at verses two through five. He gives us an answer in a series of five parallels here in verses two through five. And he describes here the character of the kind of person the Lord would approve to be in his presence now and for eternity. And, and like I said before, it's a very daunting list. David here describes this man or the characteristics of this man in a both a positive and a negative light. And, and so here are five things that, that he prescribes to a man who can stay in God's presence. Number one, in verse two, such a person, he consistently pleases God. Okay, consistently pleases God. He says this in verse two, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Walking with integrity and working righteousness. Walking is this biblical metaphor of that, that speaks about the way that you live out your life. And so one who walks blamelessly lives a whole life, so to speak, lives a life of integrity. You have this New Testament equivalent that, that Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter five, which we studied some months back, where he says, blessed are the pure in heart. You are undivided. You are solely committed to the Lord. You are literally this, this word, free of blemish. You are what you like. There's no pretense, there's no hypocrisy. Second, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, Peter writes, let your behavior be excellent. So you are excellent in all your ways, at all times. He who walks, not the one who walked, but he who walks consistently, practically, habitually before the Lord. But the second half of this verse, look at the second half. This person also works. 
righteousness. This person is fully, he's completely, he's consistently dedicated to the Lord. He does literally what is right in God's eyes. Righteousness or or right deeds, obedience to God's command is ever present in this person's life. He is wholeheartedly pursuing the righteousness of God. He works righteousness. I don't know if you're, if you're sitting here and thinking and, and maybe taking this text and, and just analyzing, I don't know, the past week or the past month or the past year against it. And, and I can only imagine what goes on in your heart, in your mind. This person consistently pleases God. There's a story of a pastor who after his Sunday messages was going back to his town on the trolley and um, he gets up, pays his fare, and the trolley driver gives him a change, but he gives him more than, than he needed to. The pastor sits down, he, he looks it over, he counts it 10 times, and, and he's thinking in his, in his mind, man, how wonderful God is. <laughs> he provides for me. This is exactly what I need here to make ends meet. He realizes that, you know, things are tough at home and what he has will just going to be enough to break even to maybe even stop by and get lunch. And so he's wrestling with himself all the way down to his uh, town. Finally, he, he uh, came to a stop and, and he got up. He, he just couldn't live with himself. He walked up to the trolley driver and he says, here you go, sir, you gave me more than you needed to. You made a mistake. And the driver said, no, sir, it's not a mistake. I was in your church last night when you spoke on integrity and honesty and I just thought I would put you to a test. You know, and this is what, what's, uh, what the author here has in mind. It's when nobody else sees how do you deal with how do you walk? Do you please God even when you think that it is through this very right, dishonest sort of situation, the Lord is going to take care of me and provide for me? Do you still know that the Lord knows, he sees, he'll take care of you? Such a person consistently pleases God. But he doesn't stop there and he says, he speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. Such a person also loves and speaks the truth. He loves the truth, and so therefore he thinks about it. Look, this speaking of the truth, it happens internally. It happens in his heart. His heart is full of God's truth. Therefore, the parallel in verse 3 can be true of this person. Because this person meditates on God's truths, he speaks this truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. Slander refers to someone who's walking around. He's collecting gossip to pass on to someone else. It's like this garbage can who who goes around and every time he hears something about another person, stores that in. And then whenever it's appropriate or inappropriate, it doesn't matter. Whenever it benefits him, he just kind of dumps it all out to other people. Slanderers, they traffic information in order to tear someone else down. You you see how the two are connected? He speaks the truth in his heart and he does not slander with his tongue. 
Jesus said it in, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, idolatries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So because the person whom God approves has right, this fellowship with God and he loves the truth in his heart, he doesn't have these evil thoughts, fornications, right, murders, slander and the like. The opposite is true of him. He speaks the truth. He loves the truth and he speaks the truth. So who can have permanent dwelling with God, church? David's answer is, well, the one who pleases God constantly, the one who loves, and the one who speaks the truth. But then he goes on and he says, you know, that person also, he genuinely loves his neighbor. He genuinely loves his neighbor. Look at verse three, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Because this man looks to please God by walking in integrity, and since he rehearses the truth of God in his heart, he does not know evil, it says to his neighbor. This man's relationship with God affects his dealing with one another. So there's this vertical attachment, there's this vertical worship, God, and then it affects his horizontal relationships. Remember, Jesus says, what is the summation of the law? The the entire law, if you were to take the first five books and you were to sum it all up, what would be the summation? And in Matthew 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest, but the second is like us, you shall love your neighbor. This person here fulfills the entire law of God. He loves the Lord by pleasing him always. And he genuinely loves his neighbor. You see then that this law is put into action by this person that's described in Psalm 15. He's putting his faith into action. Similar concept that James deals with in James chapter two. He says faith without works is dead. He does know Evil does no evil means that he will do no harm to anyone with whom he comes in contact with. Does no harm. Regarding this, um, look at, at the end of verse three, he says, and does not take up a reproach. One commentator says this, the idea is that of taking up or receiving as true the readily giving credit to it or readily giving credit to it. He is slow to believe evil of another. He does not grasp at it greedily as if he had pleasure in it. He does not himself originate such a reproach, nor does he really readily and cheerfully credit it when it is stated by others. He does not accept harm against another. This person genuinely loves his neighbor. So you think about these three things, right? This this person who has this unhindered fellowship with God, who is accepted by God, who will remain in his presence. He constantly pleases God. He constantly thinks, loves the truth, thinks of the truth, speaks the truth. This person now genuinely loves his neighbor, his friend. But 
if this wasn't enough, David here continues and he says, man, this person thinks like God. This person here thinks like God. Look what he says in verse four. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This person despises or hates the things which are vile, some of your other translations might say, but honors those who fear the Lord. So his thoughts are after God. He, he, he's not approving of those who do wickedness. That's what this verse says. Th- this godly person does not get caught up in admiring or honoring those, for instance, that our culture admires and honors. I mean, think about this. We in our culture, who do we lift up as, as honorable, as our role models, you know, for us to follow? I mean, think about this. Who, who gets all the Academy Awards? Who gets all the recognition? Who gets all the Nobel Prizes today? And usually they're the rock stars, right, and celebrities that are rich and famous, but lead very vile lifestyles. And here, this person is called to assess things and persons like our Lord would assess them and appreciate those whom the Lord appreciates and honors. Not to follow and honor that which is dishonorable to God, right, and vice versa. And so as we reflect on this, we are now are called to practically maybe not waste our money or resources or time or talent on the world's heroes to try to impress ourselves or, or our peers. We're called to have here godly role models to look up to men and women who are approved by God and honor them. Why? Well, because God approves them. And if you're anything like God, and you have to be like God in order to be with God, in order to reside and dwell with God permanently, then you're going to exude the same characteristics. You're going to think like God. And talk about high bar. I told you these things are going to be daunting. But we're not done yet. He says this person also keeps all of his promises. I mean, maybe somebody here in this group was okay up until this point. No, I highly doubt it. But maybe. David continues and he says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. This person keeps all of his promises. When you make a promise, even when the situation changes, but because you gave your word, you don't back out. You keep your commitments even when you end up getting hurt, is what this says. When you say you will be there, and when you made that promise, and then you later find out that, oh, it's actually an inconvenience to me, you stick with it. He swears to his own hurt. He made a promise, a vow to someone, and it hurts, but he goes through with it. Why? Because this person always pleases the Lord. This person genuinely loves his neighbor. This person also, look at verse 4 or verse 5, he properly handles his money and he handles his money with integrity. He does not put out his money at interest nor does take a bribe against the innocent. Back in the day, there were no banks 
right, that you can go in and borrow at a high interest rate or, or low interest rate, whatever. You had people. And if you needed something, if you were in a desperate situation, you come knocking at the, you know, your neighbor's door. But generally, people in Israel, they didn't borrow money. They inherited land. So they grew their own crops. They, they sold, they saved, and they spent. Only when you were in real need that you'd borrow money from a fellow Jew. It was common for those days for the people who had plenty of money to land those in need, but many would take advantage of that person's desperate situation and they would charge him high interest. A godly person here, David says, does not try to profit from the misfortunes of others. He understands that he's in a position of fortune. He's been blessed by God. And therefore, whenever a needy neighbor comes, he genuinely loves that neighbor and wouldn't want to profit from his misfortune. Therefore, he lends him money, but not at interest. And because this person lives to please God, he does not pervert justice for money. Look at the end. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. He won't take advantage of the unsuspecting. Why? Because he walks before God. He walks before God. A godly man understands that his integrity is what ultimately matters. And that money is just the means to be used for the kingdom of God, not to advance yourself or your own agenda. So here is the description. The great question is, O oh Lord, O oh Yahweh, who can be in your presence who can remain there, who can be accepted and have fellowship with you continually into all eternity? And then the grand answer is, ah, the man who pleases God always. The man who loves the truth and speaks the truth. The man who genuinely loves his neighbor. The man who keeps his promises. The man who thinks like God. Amazing. This is the portrait of one who is approved by God and who will dwell with him. But David here, he concludes with this final phrase in verse five, which brings us to the final point and our conclusion. And, and we need to reflect a little bit here. The glorious promise. He says this, he who does these things will never be shaken. This is amazing promise for us. The one who consistently pleases God, who loves and speaks the truth, who genuinely loves his neighbor, thinks like God and that he hates what God hates and honors what God honors, who keeps his promises no matter the cost, upholds justice and treats those who are less fortunate with great compassion, this one, this man, David says, will never be shaken. Proverbs 12, 3 says, a man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. Psalm 112, 6 says, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. There's this ultimate, there's this glorious promise that this righteous man will never be shaken, he will never be moved, he will never be uprooted. Why then will the righteous remain forever? 
why will they not be moved? And th- this promise here, he will never forever remain. Never ever will be shaken is the, is the thought here. Why will he not be shaken? Why will he not be moved? And, and this is the second crucial question we need to consider here. You know, as we were going through, through this list in verses two through five, what were your thoughts as you begin to apply this text and these qualifications to yourself, to your own life? I said earlier that this is a, a good news for us that, God, or that David gives us the answer and you perhaps are reflecting back on it and saying, man, this is no good news for me. This is terrible news. What do you mean? I need to please the Lord always. What do you mean that I always have to think like God? If only you knew my thoughts on the way to church this morning. This is no good news. I mean, did this description here describe you? You know, usually as we come to the end of this Old Testament text, we, we might be tempted to close rather quickly Okay, time to go for us, and, and it's tempting even for me to put this man on the pedestal as this prototypical person who has eternal fellowship with God and conclude something like, you know, church, be this man. You know, be better. You need to try harder in order to get to that level so that you can be accepted by God. But the honest truth is none of us in this room, we measure up to the man described in Psalm 15. And that's no good news for us. But thankfully for us, I think that's precisely the point that David is trying to make. You don't measure up. You don't measure up. I mean, think about, go back Look at Psalm 15 and and think about the order of Psalms. Um, Remember that the person who arranged Psalms, he didn't arrange them in just haphazard way, like, hey, let's just put these things together and then just figure it out, you know how they are, and, and this fits in well here. No, they are put together, right, with great significance. One Psalm follows another, and there's this thread that the one who arranged these psalms weaves throughout. And, and I want you to look at the psalm that preceded Psalm 15. Look at Psalm 14. This is another psalm of David for the choir director, a psalm of David. And, and just read with me. He says, the fool said, has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. You would... Put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. 
Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. I mean, think about comparing. If we compared ourselves to these two Psalms, we would probably fit the picture of the Psalm 14 a lot better than we fit the picture of Psalm 15. Isn't that true? Why would David then proceed to give us a portrait of a righteous man in Psalm 15? I think Psalm 14 shows us who we are apart from God's regenerating and saving grace. It's a picture of us being apart from Christ. But friends, Psalm 15 is a picture of Christ. Psalm 15 is a picture of a man who stands and who is never shaken. Think about this. We have the benefit of of having the entire book, the entire canon, and we know who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is right now. Why? Because we have all the gospels. We have all the letters written to us in the New Testament. And just consider, consider Jesus Christ for a moment. This is a description of Christ who was born of a woman and endured during his entire lifespan all kinds of evil, yet did only that which pleased the Lord. In in, uh, John 8, he says, I only do what is pleasing to the Father. It's amazing. In, In Matthew chapter three, Jesus says, I must fulfill all righteousness, everything. I only do the good things. Jesus, according to John 1.14, was full of grace and truth. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.23 that while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Friends, Jesus not only did no evil to his neighbor, but he loved his enemies. Romans 5.10. When he was bribed, by the devil in the wilderness, Matthew 4. And he was bribed with all, quote, the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Jesus resisted the devil and remained loyal to his father. He literally swore to his own hurt as he was crying out in agony in the garden and on the cross, dying a brutal death, yet he never abandoned his mission. He swears and does not change. Not only does Christ not put out his money at interest, friends, he also shares his entire inheritance with those who call on his name in repentance and faith. This is Christ, and he is forever faithful. And because he is so, beloved, it is Christ who will not be moved. We spent the last three weeks in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews in chapter one, he opens up and he says this of the son. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. 
and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. He is speaking about Jesus Christ, who remains forever, because he's not like any one of us. Friends, Jesus remains forever, and this is good news for us this morning. And I think David, he realized this himself. This is not just a New Testament reality for a saint. Old Testament saints, they understood this. And I will argue this simply by looking at the text. Psalm 15, he says, who is man? Man is a complete sinner, separated from God. Nobody does what is good. They are all corrupt. All corrupt And then he brings up this man. He says, let me show you who will actually remain, who will constantly stand in the presence of God, who will not be booted out, who has unhindered fellowship with God. Let me show you this man. And in, in, in Psalm 15, he presents us this beautiful, perfect man. And, And in Psalm 16, look at Psalm 16. Why do you think after sort of describing all of humanity and then describing this perfect man in Psalm 15, look how Psalm 16 begins, preserve me, O God. He realizes that unless there is salvation from the Lord, I will be doomed. Therefore, preserve me, for I take refuge in you. I need your salvation, Lord. Preserve me. And look at verse eight. Look at verse eight of Psalm 16. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Look at the end of Psalm 15. He who does these things will never be shaken. And then Psalm 16, eight says, because he's at my right hand, I will never be shaken. Isn't that interesting? Permanent residence with God is guaranteed to those who please him. And Jesus Christ always pleases the Father. And friend, the good news this morning is if you're found in Christ, if Christ is at your right hand, if you're in Christ, then you will never be shaken. David says in Psalm 16 here, because this is true, I will not be shaken. Why? Because I have a man I have a man who is altogether holy and altogether righteous. Beloved, if we have Christ on our side, we will not be moved. And I trust that many of you here this morning have Christ on your side. He meets the standard. He alone meets the standard. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, if you haven't repented of your sin, if you haven't surrendered to him in repentance and faith, then why do you delay? Why do you delay? I'm speaking now to the adults in this room. I'm speaking to the kids. I'm speaking to the teenagers. Why do you delay? Because there's really only one person who ever did and who will ever please God to the level that you actually can stand and be accepted before God. You can't do it on your own. He is 
alone the perfect man. You got to have him, friend, on your side when all is said and done. If you haven't answered this ultimate question, I call you this morning to answer the ultimate question. Who can reside? Jesus Christ. And if you've trusted Christ, then you will too. But for us, for us, church, who are saved, who are secured in Christ, how do we apply Psalm 15? Do we just chalk it up to the Lord and say, well, there he is. It's Jesus and he's on my side. Let's do it, Jesus. What do we do here? How do we apply? Well, by God's, through God's love for us in Christ, right? It is this love that becomes now the motivation for us to be this man. You can never be this man apart from Christ. But because Christ is at your side, because you have been regenerated, you can pursue the qualities. This then becomes the motivation for us to live like Christ, to speak the truth, to please him, to genuinely love our neighbors, to think like God, to keep our promises. We clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ, right? We offer up ourselves as living sacrifices and we pursue the righteous standard that God has said for us. As we live in the power of the spirit who's in us, we are conformed, we read in the New Testament, to the image of Christ. Are we not friends? Yes. We are called to pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. But with a completely different ability, with completely different motivation, we are now able to do this perfectly? No. But we are now able to have, to live with integrity, to please Christ, to love one another. And as we do that, we are to remember that it is only because of the perfect righteousness of Christ that we are able to have fellowship with God and we will abide with him forever. So as another year goes by, we realize that sooner or later we will spend eternity where we will rid ourselves of our calendars and we will forever be with him. Not because I am this man or you are this man, but because Jesus is this man. I want to finish this morning with a poem from the Valley of Vision for those of us who are reflecting and asking questions. This will help us here to enter this new year, reflecting on the truths that, that we just heard and, and also just be motivated in our walk with the Lord. Oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I'm in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I'm pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my solely conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me. Take the scales off my eyes. Grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study you. 
meditate on you, gaze on you, sit like Mary at your feet, lean like John on your breast, appeal like Peter to your love, count like Paul all things dung. Give me increase and progress in grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purposes, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more consistency in my zeal. As I have a position in the world, keep me from making the position, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Write forth in me, you King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in the victory attend my end. Father, we thank you. And this is our prayer that we offer to you, that you would, by the spirit who resides in us, Help us to be more like Christ. We realize that apart from your grace, apart from your regenerating power, we look more like the man described in Psalm 14 than Psalm 15. But we have this hope set on Christ, and therefore we run, and therefore we pursue holiness, not because we're so deceived us to think that by our own righteous deeds we will attain, attain to this perfection and be able to enter the heavenly place with our own righteousness. No, Father, forgive, help us to ever forget about that thought and cling to Christ and yet run, put on, put off, pursue Christ more vigorously this next year live life more victoriously because you are in us, conforming us to the image of your son. And we will forever praise you because we have this glorious promise of not just enjoying fellowship here today, now, but into eternity when we will see Christ face to face. Encourage us to go forward. In Christ's name we pray, amen.